Well, good morning to you. I'm John Weatherly, associate pastor. Um, today's sermon uh, will be the, the fifth and final one in our series on the Psalms uh, that we've been, been doing in July. Uh, if you were thinking, okay, well, it's Pastor John in July and we're doing Psalms, and then you're wondering, we're doing it again? Yeah, July has five Sundays this year. Uh, so so, so that's, that's how we are here. I want to invite you to, to turn to our text, uh, Psalm 78. Um, and I'm going to mention in particular that in the Pew Bibles, this is on page 280. Now, this is a super long psalm, okay? It's, um, it's got, what is it, uh, 72 verses. So we're not reading all of it. But I will be referring to parts of it. And so if you have it open, uh, that, that may be useful uh, to, uh, to, to, to kind of follow along. We'll try to make clear the ideas that we're talking about. But here I'd like to read just the first eight verses which introduce the, the theme of this psalm. So uh, give attention as we read uh, Psalm 78, beginning with verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God. And not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. This is the word of the Lord. We all have a tendency to misremember the past. Now, now, memory is a difficult thing. You know, what is the most commonly asked question in modern life? Where are my keys? Followed closely by, where's my phone? Uh, Tammy will tell you the question I ask every night on retiring is, where's my Kindle? Okay, because I've got to read from it before I fall asleep. It just has to happen. Don't you read a book? No, it's too awkward to hold in bed. I need my Kindle. So, so, you know, those are, those are memory issues, but they're relatively trivial, right? Uh, I, I kid myself that when I have trouble remembering names these days, it's not because I'm getting older. My Rolodex is just full, and some of the, some of the cards stick together, you know, and, and it's, it's difficult to recall. The more serious issues, if you will, about memory have to do with the way that we kind of recreate a false idea of the past. I was listening to a podcast this week uh, from The Atlantic that was describing this. Apparently, there are, there are social and behavioral scientists who have found that if you ask people uh, what they, they think about their prom, it makes a difference how close to their prom they were. Now, I didn't go to the prom. Uh, as you, some, if you know me well, you would say, well, of course, we knew that. You didn't have to tell us that. Uh, you preferred to make fun of it. Um, and that was true, and it still is. But for those normal people who did attend their prom, uh, you know, if you, if you talk to uh, a high school student the day or two after, well, how was the prom? 
oh, you know, it wasn't, I was kind of a disappointment, or oh, I felt really awkward, or I can't believe how much money I spent. And there are other people who say, oh, it was fun, I, I, I danced, I laughed, I had a great time, uh, and so forth. Now, talk to someone who's 45, and assume that just over that period of time that the, the breakdown of was your prom fun or not in the moment was about the same. At 45, everybody says, oh, the prom was great, great memory, glad I did it, oh, we had such a wonderful time back in those days. We have constructed a kind of an idealized memory out of that. Now, idealizing can kind of go in the positive in some ways, but it can also go in the negative. It's a very interesting phenomenon. Most people live with an idea that the past was better than the present. And we tend to mark the time that things changed for the worse at about the time we were born. Okay, so if you're 30-ish, you're thinking right about 1990, it all went down the toilet, okay? If you're, if you're my age, well, about 1960, oh, the 60s, ruined everything, life has been terrible ever since, you know, ever since. In, in, you know, in my parents' time, that darned Woodrow Wilson, he ruined everything. You know, that was, that's, that's kind of the, the way that we, we construct things. So all ages, all peoples have a tendency to misremember the past. And this is why the, the, the record of the Old Testament, the history of Israel, is Israel told its own history. And this psalm is a retelling, a kind of a condensation of Israel's history. This is one of the reasons why it's, it's so remarkable, because it's not just people in our time who have this issue of, of selective memory, of idealizing the past either in the positive or in the negative. In Israel's time, when peoples told their stories, they liked to tell a story of triumph. They generally left out the bad stuff and, and focused on the good stuff. So when we look at at the extensive records that we have from the ancient Near East, from places like Egypt or uh, Assyria, or even more ancient kingdoms like Ugarit and so forth. What they, what they narrate, what they celebrate, are their triumphs, their victories, and so forth. The records about, about defeats and downfalls, very, very thin, often obscured, overlooked uh, in, in their entirety. This is a little bit akin to that maxim that history is written by the victors uh, that, that relates to, to, to this in that way. In some ways, we construct ourselves as victors as we, we recall the past. Well, a remarkable thing about Israel's history is that it is not a triumphalistic history. It actually focuses on failures, on problems. Now, there are successes and there are triumphs, but they're, all, they're punctuated with stories of heroes who have deep flaws and who make grave mistakes of generations that are looking back on them disappointments who have proved to be foolish and, and unfaithful, who have in particular turned away from the God who is really the one who is victorious. Because when Israel tells a story of its victory, it's not the kind of story that was commonly told uh, in the ancient Near East, or we can go forward even to the world of the New Testament, the Greco-Roman world, or at, or at any other time. It's not, I mean, okay, uh, recently uh, 
kind of a fun story, not true, but the way we tell stories, uh, the latest Indiana Jones movie. Uh, Tammy and I went to this. We were blessed to go to a 4 o'clock show and be about the youngest people in the theater, um, uh, uh, which is, we didn't have dinner before the 4 o'clock show. <laughs> but uh, how, does, how does Indy do his thing? He's clever. He's resourceful. He is ridiculously agile. Okay, that guy can climb on a moving train at the age of 80. It's amazing the talent that, that God gave that, that individual. So that's what we focus on, you know, by our, by our cleverness, by our resourcefulness and so forth. This is how we have come through. At least public stories are told in that way. The story of Israel is not told in that way. The story of Israel is told in a way that despite the weaknesses and flaws and unfaithfulness of God's people, God has nevertheless um, brought his work to fulfillment and has brought blessing to his people. When we say history is written by the victors, uh, we can't say that about Israel. Israel was not a victorious people in the ancient world. They were largely a subject people. This is a small, weak, insignificant nation, kind of place that you just pass by on the highway as you're going from one place to another, flyover country. Uh, in, the, in the language that we would have. So this psalm, this Psalm 78, again, this is a song that is used by Israel in worship. It's a long one because it's um, what in another era might have been called a ballad. Now, in, in my vocabulary, a ballad is a slow romantic song, uh, you know, sung by, um, I don't know, um, Rosemary Clooney or... or um, Frank Sinatra or something like that, but the, the earlier meaning of ballad was a song that tells a story. Um, in, in my lifetime, some of us will remember a guy by the name of Harry Chapin back from the 70s who had a couple of songs, A Cat's in the Cradle and Taxi, that, that told stories as, as they went through. Well, that's the nature of this psalm. It's telling the story of Israel. But telling it from this distinct perspective that the Old Testament tells Israel's story, which is really God's perspective, a story which tells us honestly who we are. Israel's biblical story is told the way it is because Israel's biblical story tells us honestly who we are. As we read the story, we can read it and say, oh, that was them. But, you know, we're different from that. We're not like those people. Um, they were bad and we are good. That's really missing the point altogether. Because even within this psalm, there's a way that it's recounting Israel's history that's saying, if you're pointing your finger at somebody else, watch out because that's you too. Israel's story is our story. So I want to consider how this, this psalm emphasizes this. And, and again, as I said, we'll be pointing out elements throughout the psalm if you want to keep it, keep it open, but I'll try to keep us focused on, on some of the words of the psalm that point to this idea. A first element of, of this psalm's view of Israel's history tells us we are the focus of God's saving actions. We're the focus of God's saving actions. If we're asking ourselves, what is life, the universe, and everything all about, this is what it's all about, that God is seeking for himself a people, that he is working in history, in space and time, to bring a people to himself who will belong to him forever. 
And this is a remarkable view of things. This just absolutely transforms the way that we understand what's going on. This is why verses 6 and 7 say what they do. We're telling you this to teach your children that the next generation might know these things, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so they should set their hope on God. Okay, that you should understand what God is doing. Now, there's a kind of a condensed idea about Israel's history here that the, the larger Old Testament story is, is laying out for us. We need to really continue, I think, to keep in, in front of ourselves the remarkable kind of contrast between two ideas in, in the Old Testament scriptures. One is that the God of Israel is the creator of everything that exists, that he calls into existence the heavens and the earth, that they are all his, that the world is not something that just exists by its nature, uh, and that in its vastness, it's not just a, a, a place of random meaninglessness, but that God has called it into existence himself. And so who is he? He is all-powerful. He is mighty. He is transcendent. He is beyond our imagination in his greatness. Contrast that with the idea that he has called this one little nation to be his. That to, to you know, to boil it down to the contrast really makes very little sense on the surface. How could the God who does all of that call one nation? Well, the answer is found at the beginning of the Old Testament story of Israel's call, which is found in the call to Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, when God says to Abraham, go to the place I'll show you. I'm going to give you the land. I'm going to make you a great nation. And this is already crazy stuff because Abraham is old and childless and how is he going to receive this land, etc. But it, that promise ends by saying, and by you, I will bless all the families of the earth, all the nations of the earth. So when Israel understands its calling, its vocation, its place in what God is doing in his saving actions in the world, it understands we are called as God's people because somehow in a way that is as yet unknown to us, through us, God is going to bring his blessing to all of his people. So the God who is the creator of all things and rightfully the Lord of all nations will become practically and really the Lord of all nations through this one small, weak, insignificant, and mostly unfaithful people. What a crazy, crazy, crazy contrast. But to as, we, as we see that contrast, then we understand this is why I need to attend to this story. This is why generation after generation needs to listen. This is a perpetually revolutionary idea that has in it the power to transform the way I understand my life. A creator God focuses on humanity. In all of the vastness of the universe, which we continue to, to come to grips with as we learn more and more about it, how, how utterly unimaginably huge the universe is, there is this one obscure place where humanity exists in this one moment in the, in the eons of time. And in this one place, God loves these creatures, us, in our weakness, in our evil, in our rebellion, 
in our cruelty, in our insignificance, and somehow he works in the ordinary particulars of space and time and history to bring a fundamental change to you and me, which gives our lives meaning and purpose and direction and joy and peace. It is an absolutely remarkable concept that God has focused what he is doing on us, on humanity, even with who we are. And so we have to remember with that to have another honest assessment of ourselves that Israel's history shows us, and that is that we are drawn to stubborn rebelliousness. Okay, we are drawn to stubborn rebelliousness. Verse 8 began to point to this, that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. Here, the, the psalmist is using a kind of a code word, because when you say in the Old Testament, a stubborn generation, you're talking about your ancestors at the time of the Exodus. You know, those people who saw the mighty acts of God. They saw the ten plagues in Egypt, the, the, the Nile River turned to blood. They saw the frogs and the lice and the flies and the sun turned to darkness. And they, they saw that terrible, terrible act of, of the killing of the firstborn. And they were taken across the, the Sea of Reeds in, in a, a miraculous act of God's deliverance as he parts the sea. And the, the mighty army of the Egyptians is defeated without even a fight. That, that God has gone effectively into battle for them, uh, to deliver them. They go out into the wilderness of Sinai, a place where you just can't live. There's nothing there to support you. And every day, God gives them the food that they need, the water that they need, that their, their clothes don't wear out, their shoes don't wear out. They're sustained in an unsustainable place. They see all of this, and what do they do? Well, Moses has been gone a while. Uh, let's all pitch in and build a golden calf and see what happens. You know, and those Canaanites are big. Have you seen them? I don't think, I don't think we can beat them. Forgetting everything, forgetting everything. Well, that's not just them. That is later generations of Israel. As the, the psalm, in, in, in verse 9, the psalm says, the Ephraimites armed with the bow turned back on the day of battle. This is maybe a reference to any one of several points in Israel's history where Ephraim, which was the leading tribe of kind of the northern portion of Israel, had been defeated in battle. One of the famous ones takes place in, in 1 Samuel when the Philistines are the, are the enemy and, and the Israelites say, you know, we need to beat these people. Let's take the Ark of the Covenant into battle because that's where God lives and then he'll defeat them. They're using the Ark like a good luck charm as it were. And not even listening to God who says, you don't, this is not for taking into battle. This is, this is to be left in the tabernacle. And they're defeated in that battle, and the ark is captured, and the tabernacle is overrun, and even the priests are killed. It's just a deep, shameful defeat that comes to them. Well, what's going on in that? They are misremembering. They are forgetting because of their stubbornness, their, their rebelliousness. Now, an interesting thing about this psalm is that at this point, it's kind of doing a little bit of finger pointing. Oh, look at Ephraim. Look at what they did. 
And it sounds as if, well, you know, those are those guys. But then as the psalm continues, you realize, no, it's really saying we're all like them because we've all shared in that kind of stubborn rebelliousness. This is, on the one hand, northern Israel's dominant tribe, but it is not just that tribe. By the time we get to verse 17, yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart. Now it's saying, you know, this is who we are. This has been our history. We can look at the part. We look at the whole. We are all this kind of people. We are all these folk. We are rebellious. We seek, all of us, security. We want security against the travails of life, and ultimately we want security against death. And so we, 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 we seek to forestall death, to live as long as we can, to live forever. We, so we exercise what power we have to gain more, to become more secure. And in doing that, we shift our focus to ourselves, to our own resources, to our own situation abilities, to what it is that we can grasp a hold of. And we forget, when God brings his victory into the world, when God delivers his people, God does it. It was not Israel's cleverness that delivered them from Egypt, but the mighty hand of God. It is not our own resourcefulness which brings us security, but it is what God has done for us. And when we try to exercise our own power and ability for our own security, we have a knack of more or less inevitably exercising power over others in ways that act to their detriment. We become insensitive, we become selfish, we become cruel. This is, this is who we are. We are drawn to stubborn rebelliousness and because we are forgetful. A third aspect of what this psalm tells us that we are and, and very central. Verse 11, they forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. When we're focused on ourselves uh, rather than God's deliverance, then we forget what God has done. We forget where our true source of power is. It's interesting that after the Exodus, as Israel comes to the wilderness, of course, Moses gives them at God's command the, the feast of the Passover, an annual celebration of their deliverance from Egypt. And the whole of the Passover is designed as a communal act of memory. You, you eat your meal with, with your belt on and your shoes on because you're ready to go. Your car keys are in your hand, right? Uh, you're, you're ready to leave. Why do you eat unleavened bread at the Passover? You don't have time for the bread to rise, okay? Kids, we're going through the drive-thru. The road trip starts now. Everything is, is underlining that point. And what's the key verb of Passover? Remember. Remember. And how Passover then is, is, is observed generation after generation is not simply to say, this is what God did then, but this is what God does for us. We are participants in those actions of the past as we remember them. That's, that's the way we remember them. Not saying that was then and this is now, 
but we enter into those, into those actions uh, our, ourselves. Not, if, if, if you'll allow me this, not in the way that, that we might if we're, say, Civil War reenactors or something like that, but genuinely entering into the understanding of who we are as a result. So let me just note here a little bit, beginning in verse 40, some of what it is that the psalmist says the Israelites forgot. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so they could not drink of their streams. He sent them swarms of flies, which devoured them, and frogs, which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines, etc., etc. all of these things that God is doing. How do you forget those things? Well, it's the, it's the pressure of the present, right? It's the pressure of the moment. It's the way everyday, daily things can distract us from the wonders that God has performed. And then as we get to verse 56 and following, we see subsequent generations did no better. They tested and rebelled against the Most High God. They did not keep his testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow, for they provoked him to anger with their high places. They moved him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tents that were, uh, he dwelt among mankind, delivered his power to captivity and his glory to the hand of the foe. Why does God allow Israel's enemies to overcome them? Because they are forgetful, because they forget to rely on him. In seeking power and security, we forget God. This is why we can say that to remember as Christians is a solemn act of faith. It's an act of self-definition as well. When we remember what God has done, we are defining ourselves by those kinds of things. Self-definition and self-understanding. Who am I? Well, I am, a, I am a person who in my weakness, in my failure, in my quest for security, uh, which quest inevitably fails if I carry it out in the ordinary way, I am a person who profoundly needs God and what God alone can give. So, we gather for worship as an act of remembrance, and that's why we're always focused on the story of what God has done in the scriptures. We gather for the Lord's Supper, key verb, remember, as Jesus takes Passover and says, now this is about me. This is the even greater act of God's amazing salvation, which we must remember. We receive baptism as an enactment of burial and death and resurrection and new life and of cleansing, all of which are reminders of what God has done. We pray as an act of communication to God and as a reminder to ourselves that whether waking or sleeping, we rely on God at all times. We read the scriptures as the reminder, the the reminder to our memory, the consciousness shaping of, of the past and what God has done. Even the traditional observance of the Christian year, 
with, with Lent leading up to, to Good Friday and Easter, with, with Advent leading up to Christmas. All of these things are there to remind us, to help us remember who we are. Now, any of these can be done with the obliviousness of routine. Okay? You know how the obliviousness of routine works, don't you? I'm about to turn 65, so I take pills, okay, as one does. And it's important that I take them regularly. And so I have a routine for taking them, okay. At night, I go into the bathroom, and I have two little medicine vials, and I put in my ones for the night, and I put in my ones for the morning. Not that many, but I would forget them regardless. And then I take the night ones and I leave the morning ones there to be taken in the morning. Well, guess what happened this morning? I went in in the morning and I looked and the vials were empty. And I knew I hadn't taken my morning pills, so that just meant I didn't take my night pills either. Okay. Now, how did I do that? I mean, you know, missing one dose is not a big deal, but if I'd like to live longer than I might otherwise, I need to take my pills. You'd think that would get my attention. No, it's just, it's just routine. You know. Now, I did remember to brush my teeth. I want to assure you of that. Okay, but I, you know, just just ordinary routine. Honestly, the Reds just came this close to beating the Dodgers last night, and I think I was just so sad. But yeah, you know, we need we need that remembrance. We can observe the acts of memory in a way that doesn't really remember anything. We just we just do it. It becomes automatic. But each of those acts of memory gives us the opportunity to overcome forgetfulness that just seems to be who we are. Well, this psalm ends with a note that is vital to it, and that is that we need a good shepherd. Uh, Let me just read a few verses from from the end, beginning in verse 65. If I can find myself here. Um, Then the Lord awoke from a sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout, and he put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built a sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth which he had founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. For following the nurse, from following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. So this psalm ends with this note that God turns away from the big, powerful tribe of Israel, still small by global standards, but big for Israel, Ephraim, and turns to the smaller tribe of Judah and specifically to the least likely in the tribe of Judah, a young adolescent by the name of David and anoints him king. When Samuel goes to, to, to David in, in the narrative of 1 Samuel, uh, as God has sent him to the household of, of, of Jesse, Jesse has all of these sons, and, and the older ones look like very likely candidates as king, whom Samuel is to anoint as the successor to Saul, whom God is now rejecting. And each time God says, no, no, no. And so finally Samuel has to ask, do you have any other sons? Well, there's the middle school kid. He's out with the sheep. 
He's got a bad complexion, his voice cracks, and he doesn't know what to do with his hands. And that's the one. Now, David grows to be a mighty warrior, and he has his own career, which includes forgetfulness. But here he becomes an archetype of the weakness through which God does his thing. And critically, in the very middle of David's career, the prophet Nathan says to him, listen, you want to build a house for God. You want to build a temple. This is in 2 Samuel chapter 7. But this is what God says. You're not going to build my house. After you, I will raise up a son. He will build my house. I will establish his throne forever. I won't take my love away from him the way I did from Saul. He will be a son to me, and I will be a father to him. He is the one through whom the blessing of the nations will come. Now, in the course of Israel's history, we think, oh, that must be Solomon. And then we realize, nope, because look what that guy did. And so in the course of generation after generation, each generation of the faithful is saying, could this be the one, this and latest in the line of David? And, you know, some of them were, were good and godly men. Other of them, others were terrible apostates and, and idolaters. All of them were flawed. All of them were flawed. None of them were the king that we need. And then, after even the institution of Israel's monarchy is gone, in the same insignificant place where David was born, is born to an insignificant couple, a child who lives what should have been an insignificant life, but in whom God was present really and truly. He was both fully human and fully God, and he demonstrated that by his mighty acts of power in which he acted with the power of God for the weak and the lowly and the helpless and those who had nowhere else to turn. But when he is confronted by the power that wants to take his life, he does not exercise that power to protect himself, but surrenders himself for our sake. And how does he describe himself in John chapter 10? I am the good shepherd. All those other shepherds, I'm paraphrasing. (laughs) I lay down my life for the sheep. And let me tell you something. There's another flock, and I'm going to get them, and we're going to be one flock, one one sheepfold. Okay. I'm going to take back the nations. Jesus is our good shepherd. He lays down his life for the sheep. He is the climax of Israel's history, highlighting how God overcomes even our rebelliousness and our forgetfulness and invites us to him. Stubborn generation in this psalm is described as those in the wilderness, but that's a phrase that Jesus used for the people of his own time who saw him do the mighty acts of God and who refused to believe. You know, the mighty acts of God are still going on. We need to pay attention to them. Of course, they are in the wake of the greatest of the mighty acts of God, which he he brought in Jesus Christ. But let's recognize them and realize how close to the story we are. This last week, a man that I've known for a number of years passed away. His name was Rick Jett, and for much of his life, he was the, uh, the executive director 
of an organization called Inter International Disaster Emergency Services. I want to tell you just a little bit about, about Rick and that organization. It was founded by his father-in-law, a man named Milton Bates, who was a tool and die maker living in Marion, Indiana. Now, when Milton died, Rick described his father-in-law as the kind of generous person about whom family members worried if he went to the bank, would he come back with all the money? Because, you know, if he saw anybody who was in need, he would just give them the money. Okay, this was the kind of man he was. In 1970, he was 70 years old and um, uh, was watching uh, a television program about, or a news report about the, um, the cyclone uh, and flooding in, in Bangladesh that happened at that point. Uh, and, and just the, the hundreds of thousands of people who had been killed and were suffering. And, and, and moved to tears, he began to write to other people in his circle of Christians about what can we do about this kind of thing. Well, three years later, because of what he did, a group got together, a small group, and founded International Disaster Emergency Services as a way for Christians to make donations and get those to places where people in the world were suffering, especially in circumstances of disaster. Now, this is an organization which continues to exist today. Its budget in a typical year runs somewhere between 10 and 25 million, depending on what's going on in the world and how people give. It operates completely by, by small donations. Uh, Milton's uh, son-in-law, Rick, became the director of this organization. Amazingly, after he himself had suffered kidney failure, was in dialysis, and a fellow pastor from Marion, Indiana, came to him and said, you know, I think God is telling me I should give you a kidney. And he was tested and was a match. And so Rick lived uh, uh, with, that, with that kidney uh, for, for, for the rest of, of his life. How does God take just a guy in a place like Marion, Indiana, and, you know, a guy with kidney failure and a lot of little donations of 10 and 25 and $40 and turn it into something that has made a difference in the lives of countless people in the name of Jesus. Well, this is how God does his thing. These are the mighty acts of God. And we look at them and we say, that is definitely not us. That's got to be him. So praise the God who does these kinds of things. We can recognize in the biblical story our own story. We can remember God's mighty deeds. We can hear the voice of our shepherd. We can recognize his supreme value, give up all else, endure the hardships, ignore the lure of power, find power in weakness, and continue to remember and define ourselves and to listen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are weak, but you are strong. You became weak on our behalf. You are a good shepherd, and you do the mighty acts of God. It was the mighty act of, of God the Father that raised you from the dead, and as you rule at the right hand of God and have sent your spirit among us, you continue to do your work among us. Teach us, Lord, to remember, to rely. We pray in the name of Jesus, our King. Amen.